This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Alice Living, best-selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest today is Laura Mathias, who, aged 13, began to suffer with alopecia universalis. Fast forward to today, Laura is a passionate advocate for living well with any sort of visible difference, campaigning with charities Changing Faces and Alopecia UK. She uses her skills as a communications manager and leans into her neurodivergent creativity to find new angles to raise awareness of visible difference in the media. Laura has secured international media coverage and has been cast in advertising campaigns using every opportunity to promote the importance of representation. Laura, I am so happy second time round because we got derailed by the storm. You're here. How are you doing today, my love? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. I can't believe how dark it is so early, but it's uh, very lovely to see your smiling face and yeah, nice to have a chat, non-work related chat after work. There you do. Isn't it the most British thing that for the next like four weeks, we'll basically be commenting about how is it already November and how is it dark mm-hmm. this early? <laughs> Yeah, I'm so sorry to introduce that cliche to your podcast this season, but yeah. Oh my God, it's It's so so dark, it's so cold. Have you got the heating on yet? (laughs) Rather you than me. You went first. Now, look, I'm so excited to have you on. And as I hope people can already tell, you just have this like amazing personality and this ability to bring, I guess, maybe a little sense of like humor and and lightness to what is, a, you know, a really huge topic and something that we we haven't yet covered on Give Me Strength, which is why I'm really grateful to have you on. No pressure to be the spokesperson, but but um, but really, really grateful to have you come on. And I think that, as I said in that introduction, you have kind of, you know, become a real advocate for those who live with visible difference. And I think that's a really nice way that you put it. I took that from your website. I think some of us might have, I guess, a basic understanding of what alopecia is. But I wondered if you could explain exactly what started happening to you at age 13 and when this was identified as alopecia, because I think sometimes our knowledge of it is quite surface level. So it'd be really good to understand actually how it manifested and what alopecia looks like for you. Of course. Yeah. So alopecia is a word I am now very familiar with. But at the time when I first was 13 years old, I was at my hairdressers getting my usual, you know, cut, blow, dry and straighten. It was early 2000s so you know GHD straighteners other brands are available all the rage and um, yeah my hairdresser was just working on the back of my head and then she suddenly stopped and I felt her parting my hair it felt very cold that's all I remember and then she beckoned my mum over she was like oh can you see this and they didn't they didn't address me and this is kind of the tone to how all my hair loss story would go adults around me looking quite panicked having you know hushed conversations about things and me not really understanding what was going on but my hairdresser was telling my mum that I had a small 50p size bald patch at the back of my head, just in isolation on its own. Um, and then my mum was speaking to me and saying, how long have you had this? Did you know you had this? And I was like, well, no, I never noticed it before. And that bald patch, quickly another one popped up and then another one popped up. And things progressed quite quickly in terms of those patches then joining up to the point where I was basically rocking a bit of an undercut. Um <laughs> And my mum at that stage took me to the doctors and straight away he said, oh, yes, this looks like alopecia. And my mum hadn't even heard that term before. This is back in 2003, 2004. And he said, well, obviously, Laura, you've got asthma, you've got eczema. They're both autoimmune conditions and alopecia is part of the same family. So what's happening is your body is in overdrive. And for some reason, it thinks your hair follicles are 
bad. So it's attacking them. And that's why your hair's falling out. But don't worry. It's normally temporary. I'm sure the hair will grow back. So just try not to worry about it. Get back out there and everything will be fine. That was it. It was like, here's the term. Out the door you go. And I was 13 years old and told basically, calm down and your hair will grow back. And that is really like looking back that I think that's probably one of the driving factors to now I do everything that I do because I think that first contact point kind of being told what I had or what was going to be different about me wasn't handled in a holistic way at all it kind of felt like it was my fault because he very even at that point at the point of diagnosis of this term alopecia being introduced to me it was connected to stress somehow because he asked me the question is something going on in your life that's stressful that may, may have caused some hair loss? And I was like, well, this is awkward, but my parents are getting a divorce. And yeah, it's not been great at home. And he was like, oh, well, that can often be a trigger. So because of the other things you've got, the eczema, the asthma, it was likely you were going to get it. But don't panic, it will grow back. So it was, it was a lot of information, far too much for me to emotionally comprehend at that age, I'd say. And um well, I'm sitting here now ball chatting to you. So I think you can guess and listeners can guess it didn't grow back. And it was really flipping tough because I was never really given anything other than that title. I was never really told how to treat it. It was just a case of just hope for the best and your hair will stop falling out. And obviously that's counterintuitive because all I did was stress about those bald patches and how quickly they were developing. Of course. And I think that I'm really sad when I hear these stories of kind of like these touch points with the medical profession because I think that you know it's it's hard not to get frustrated at those who are GPs I I have total support for I've got friends who are GPs um mm. but I guess that what we have to understand is that the medical profession as a whole and the way that the NHS and the GP system is set up in this country is those touch points I mean that was a long time ago obviously but those touch points are so fleeting it's like a 15 minute appointment it's a 30 minute appointment the GP's busy and stressed you're coming mm. in and wanting you know the, the most from that session and, and it's just really hard for there to be delivered that level of empathy that's probably necessary and that you definitely deserved in that moment and that that must have been really really hard I think that one of the things that I am really keen to understand is I guess there can be a I guess a, a range of symptoms with alopecia it, you know as you said some hair might grow back for some people some you know for whom that doesn't happen what's your like for example with your situation yours continue to fall out and you are then decided I guess to kind of go down the route of and I know that you wore wigs for many years so you decided to mm. go down that route but does it sometimes happen that, you know, people can recover from it? There's hair, hair growth again. How does that kind of work? I think it's really helpful to remember that alopecia is an umbrella term for hair loss. Um, and when I developed alopecia, it was called alopecia areata is basically small bald patches. Alopecia totalis is full hair loss on your scalp. Alopecia universalis, and I always do this hand movement and it's very questionable, is basically all the hair on your body. So I am currently rocking alopecia universalis. <laughs> Sorry, I'm currently rocking alopecia universalis, um, which, you know, some people might be jealous of. But when I tell you how sporadic and random alopecia is, I don't think you would be. For most people, alopecia will be short term and their hair should come back. In my case, it went from alopecia areata, which were small bald patches, to really just developing. And I look back and arguably that could have been because I stayed in that really stressful home situation. Or it could have been because genetically I was predispositioned. We just don't know. And there is so little research actually around this condition and, and autoimmune conditions in general, which is so frustrating because it's just like my body is just playing a trick on me. Um, and I talk about now having developed into alopecia universalis, which means I'm pretty much smooth everywhere from at the moment, I'm looking one hairy armpit. What is that about? So all I'm saying is my body is just doing its own thing. And there isn't treatment for me now, I would say. I know there are people that are still pursuing, pursuing treatments, medical intervention to really think that the only way forward is for their hair to come back. And that's the only way they can move forward. And believe me, I get that. I was there for a very long time. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. But for me now, I just I don't see the solution as being fixing what's going on in my body. My cause and my aim now is to fix what's going on in society in terms of how people respond to the fact that I'm just a woman that is smooth all over. That's so well put and, and you're absolutely right we are going to come on to that. I think before we move on to that one of the things that I'm 
really keen to understand. And I think, you know, you spoke a little bit about the emotion that went into that diagnosis and, and where you were in that moment. But just, you know, as a 13 year old, there there is no good age to experience hair loss. Um, and we all see, I guess, to some extent, especially as women, our hair as being part of our identity and, you know, who we are. But being a teenage girl and starting to develop into a young adult and experiencing hair loss must have been incredibly difficult, you know, when you're just starting to emerge as like this person, this kind of young woman that's going into society, it must have, it must have been really difficult. And I wondered how you navigated that journey and, and I guess what really helped you to kind of stay positive throughout what must have been some quite hard days. Honestly, I didn't stay positive. I was 13, my hair was falling out rapidly, everything stopped. When I couldn't disguise the fact that my hair was falling out, and at the age of 13, as you say, all of a sudden, hormones are raging, and it felt like my entire worth at school was suddenly based on what I looked like. I'd had best friends in like, you know, year seven at the age of 11, 12, that were boys. I loved playing, like I was, you know, a bit of a tomboy, whatever. And all of a sudden, they didn't want to play with me anymore, and they called me Ugly Laura. That was before I lost my hair. That was just when I was a chubby kid with eczema and glasses. Now I was going bald. So I stopped going to school bit by bit. I would skip PE, then I would skip a day here or there. And then when my hair loss was so bad that no amount of washing, blow drying it and whatever would work, I just refused. And I remember my parents who were getting a very messy divorce at the time that just dragged on and on and on and arguably was a trigger because it was so stressful at home, both standing at the end of my bunk bed, pleading with me together to go to school. And I just remember so clearly telling them I can't. It wasn't a choice. I was terrified to leave my house and be seen as someone that was losing their hair because I couldn't see any example of any young person or even an adult around me that was a happy, healthy, bald person or balding person. It was it was only bald equals illness, bald equals being old, bald equals bad, you know? So yeah, I didn't cope. Like I was emotionally unable to cope. And I genuinely, I was off school for the rest of year nine. So that's over six months. I barely left the house, Alice. Like, and that's not an exaggeration. I stayed at home. I sat on an exercise bike, controlled the thing that I could, which was my weight. And basically didn't leave the house for six months. And I look back now and it makes me really sad to think that, well, one, that was allowed to happen. I kind of wish someone had intervened because I was a 13-year-old child. But also for me, I think it's really important to tell that part of the story because I thought, I thought my life was over. And I know that sounds really melodramatic, but when you've just been living life kind of without any hurdles and then all of a sudden your home life gets really messy and this thing happens to you where doctors are saying, oh no, you're fine. Your hair's just falling out. I'm sure it will come back. It was almost like people were belittling the experience. And yet on the other hand, other people were like, oh my God, I wouldn't be seen dead without hair. So it was these two extremes I was being told and yet nowhere I could see anyone like me. And I just everything stopped and it stayed that way for quite some time there are two things that I want to go into firstly I do apologize because I think you're absolutely right that you know sometimes within these stories we want to be like oh how did you get through the dark days we want this kind of like magical story and I, and I know that I can be really guilty of leaning into that narrative and kind of saying you know how did you find a way through and actually sometimes it's actually really important for someone just to say well I didn't it was fucking tough. And I, mm. you know, just as you said, you know, not to take away from your words, but that it's actually really good to hear that level of vulnerability. And I really appreciate you sharing that. The second thing is actually something that I picked up on around your relationship with your body and food at the time and exercise, because I think that that's kind of a, a recurring theme throughout my life with, you know, how I've responded to trauma. And, and I think that I'd be really interested to hear you talk on that a little bit more in terms of what that did for you in terms of control and, and I guess body image and, and everything that kind of came along with that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, so I follow you on Instagram and I see the positivity that can come with taking control and positivity, which I'm probably lacking a bit at the moment since lockdown in terms of healthy habits, eating, and the power of exercise. Back then, um, it was about, it was simply about control, but I wouldn't say it was in a psychologically safe or healthy way because this change was happening to my physical appearance and my health, it seemed, with my hair falling out. The one thing that I could change about my appearance was I didn't want to be fat anymore. <laughs> um, and I'm laughing because it's really hard to talk about this time in my life because I was so young and genuinely 
I think I've repressed so much of it because effectively I stayed in my house for six months at 13 without my friends. My parents were out of work. They barely spoke to each other. So this is really probably quite a traumatic time, if I'm honest, if looking back. The exercise bike was there. Basement Jack CD that I freaking loved, the singles I would put on every afternoon and dance the whole album to it because I clearly was looking for release. I was clearly looking for emotional release. And that I think was healthy. And, you know, it was great. That was great. The sitting on the exercise bike day after day and that being all I did, that probably was less emotionally healthy. Um, and I lost a lot of weight. And, and I was overweight beforehand. So that was healthy to an extent. But I remember my uncle seeing me actually after all this time, once I started getting back out in the world and once I'd got a wig and all these things. And I remember him complimenting me on how well I looked because I'd lost so much weight. And I remember feeling really triggered by that and being really confused because I knew how unhealthy the whole process had been and how out of control I felt. And I thought, is he just saying something nice because he doesn't want to comment on my wig and my hair loss, you know? So all these things go into it. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. And and look, I think that let's not go into it too much because I because I, I totally appreciate that it is very triggering. I think I'm interested to, to understand and, and as you just shared is that I think so many of us see exercise a positive thing. I'm sat here as a mm. personal trainer. Of course, exercise is a brilliant positive thing. But what we must recognize is that, and I say this phrase so many times, we can have too much of a good thing. And also we can sometimes use things in an unhealthy and unpositive way. So as much as exercise is great, it doesn't mean that the more you do, the better it is. Uh, As much as eating healthy is great, doesn't mean that the more you do, the better it is. You know, there is a threshold on these things and there needs to be an understanding that exactly as you said, sometimes this stuff isn't actually that healthy. And I was on the flip side of that. I, I have absolutely had to hold my hands up and recognize that part of my disordered eating and my addiction to exercise and, and all of that came from healing or trying to heal trauma and going about it in all the wrong ways. And what I just picked up when you first answered that that first question was, I saw a similarity that I saw that sense of, you know, you were trying to in some way heal the trauma that within doing that, there developed a, a different sense of control. And, and I think control is something that we all like and want. And sometimes when the rest of our life, you know, feels out of control, your parents divorce, you're going through this uh, hair loss that is feels completely out of your control, that of course you turn to something that you feel, well, at least I can control this. At mm-hmm. least this is something for me that I can be in control of that can make me feel more socially acceptable because we know that thinness equals social acceptability acceptability. And so I I really, really just want you to know that I empathize totally with being in that position. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Just on that, like I found it really, um, really healthy for me to go back and revisit that in therapy and like to go through some mm. of that, because I do think that we can attribute so much blame onto ourselves for doing those things. Yeah. Like some of the way that you spoke about that was, I knew I was doing wrong. And I, I you know, I, and actually like, it wasn't your fault. And, and you were doing you were surviving in the only way you knew how. And I think that's really important to remember. Um, just to move on, I think one of the things that I um, am really interested in is is the, the sense of support for those experiencing alopecia. I know now that you're an amazing advocate uh, for both of those charities that I mentioned in the introduction, but you mentioned at the time that there weren't many role models or people that you could turn to in terms of support. You know, off the top of my head, I could probably only reference back at that time, someone like Gail Porter as being a visible woman in the public eye who had lost her hair. So I'm guessing that this this lack of representation for women who were experiencing what you were was really tough. And I I wondered if you could explain, I guess, at, at what point you found your tribe, you found your your people that really got you and supported you and, and how that really came about. Gail Porter lost her hair the year after I did. So Gail Porter didn't even exist in my mind as a 13 year old that sounds awful because now I'm probably her biggest fan I think she is absolutely amazing and I've actually hung out with her now which makes me feel like alopecia royalty um freaking love Gail she's great but my god the narrative surrounding Gail's hair loss was something I had to live through just as I was going back to school and I only could go back to school once I went back to my hairdresser saved what was remaining of my head and got a wig put on and styled on me. And that was in 2004, 2005. And I did not go out without a wig in public until the pandemic. So that's nearly two decades of just even, not even considering 
going out without a wig. I just didn't think it was an option. So when I was back at school at the start of year 10, and then Gail was in the news, and it was always it was just awful, awful media stories about the once most beautiful TV presenter, Gail Porter, now has lost her hair. Gail going through a breakdown is now bald. You know, it wasn't just Gail has an autoimmune condition called alopecia. It was about mental health. It was about her being homeless. It was about her being now ugly, air quotes, you know, compared to how she had been this really desirable woman. It was very questionable. Now, looking as someone who actively interrogates media representation, it makes me really angry. Then, as a 14-year-old, just back at school wearing the worst human hair wig you've ever seen in your life and probably wearing it down to a lack of eyebrows because wigs were way too big for my little bald head, let's just put it like that. So it was very obvious I was wearing a wig, but I didn't know that. I just thought it was the best option for me. And there were adults around me at that point, and they were referencing Gail because she was so visible in the media, especially that year. And I think my mum felt relieved. I think she felt, oh, finally, there's a point of reference. People will understand what alopecia is, Laura, because, because Gail's doing such a great job. You know, she's going on the TV and she's saying, I don't want to wear a wig. That's just not me. And whilst I should have found that inspiring, and believe me, I do now, at the time, I was not ready. And I felt exposed. I didn't like that there was someone public saying, no, I don't need to wear a wig. Bald is beautiful. I can do me. I found that too much too soon. And it, I found it really scary because you've got to remember, I'm a teenager. I just want to be like everyone else. I just want to get by the day. And in my head, I figured I don't want to be judged on my visible difference. If I disguise it, if I assimilate then people will judge me for who I am and my personality. I am more than my alopecia. I don't need to do this. I don't need to do that. And at the time, I thought that was strength. And I thought that was me dealing with it. Now, you know, 20 years later, I look back and I see that was not the case. That was me in fight or flight, doing what I had to do to get back to school, do my, G you know, do my GCSEs and get by. And that is totally valid. And I look back with nothing but, you know, love and empathy for 14-year-old me. And the fact that I managed to walk back through those school gates, I think is a freaking miracle, to be honest, based on how badly I felt. But in terms of media representation, and this is still true to today, overwhelmingly, the only bald characters you will see, actually, are villains. 100%. Thinking Voldemort, you know, or lovable Uncle Fester, whatever. Like, it's always grotesque. It's, it's typically men, older men, or women who are ill. And of course, there's the very typical representation of hair loss, pulling, going through cancer treatment. And that is a huge assumption that people still make. It's a huge narrative. Um, it's a, a very important one. And having actually worked in the charity sector and at cancer charities, it, it's a really huge part of that experience. But it's slightly different from alopecia because for someone like me, I had to come to a point where I knew my hair wasn't coming back. I had to let go of the hope. For those first few years of wig wearing, I still hung on to hope. One day, I wouldn't have to wear the wig because I was still basically rocking a mohawk under my wig. And I would have patches regrow because it's so random, alopecia. Like, it was really patchy. Even now, I'm rocking some eyelashes. You can't see, but, you know, if I came right up to the camera. Whereas six months ago, bald as a baby's bottom on my eyes, you know, like not anything. It's so random. Media representation has a lot to answer for, in my opinion, because the whole point of representation is it's meant to be a reflection of what our society truly is. And I know that there are one in five people in the UK who self-identify as having some kind of visible difference. And that could be a condition like alopecia, acne, psoriasis, eczema. It could be a limb difference. It could be cleft lip. It could be acquired when you are in an accident or you're burnt. Um, or it could be something that you're born with. So any of us could have some kind of visible difference. And yet I can't tell you heroin or a hero that I've seen in a film of late who is either neutrally or positively represented to us and they have visible difference. I can certainly tell you, having watched all the Bond films, even the most recent ones, that they will probably have a facial disfigurement and that will be a shorthand for their villainy or their backstory or their motive and it's just boring. It's just so like primary school. And I think we just need to move beyond that. And we're getting there. And I'm really, really encouraged now to see models, you know, even on ASOS or whatever, you know, commercial models that don't have hair 
rocking it and looking amazing and proving that bald is beautiful. And that is fantastic. Personally, I still think there's a hierarchy of diversity. So if you're asking me about representation, I'm a plus size blotchy bald woman. I don't feel represented by the media. Hell no. That's why when my friend who happens to be a fashion designer asked me to be involved in London Fashion Week, I said yes, even though it scared the bejesus out of me because I thought, 13-year-old me would never dream that she would be asked to do this. When I get requests like that, I just say yes. And then I think about the fear later because I don't see the representation that I need. I don't see myself represented. So until that happens, I'm going to have to be the role model that I didn't have. You're so right. And I actually think that, you know, for those who are listening, it actually takes someone like yourself to maybe bring it more into the forefront of our minds, the connection between, for example, villainy and baldness. As someone who hasn't had many touch points with alopecia, I don't know if I'd necessarily have made that correlation. But actually, now you said it, I'm like, oh my God, yes. And that's not okay. And that actually creates this warped perception of baldness. And, you know, no wonder we instantly connect it to certain things and we see it as a quote unquote bad thing. So I absolutely understand where you're coming from. And I think this, the way that you've approached talking about it and this idea that you're challenging the, the, the media representation and, and the narrative around baldness is, is so important because there are people like myself who haven't even maybe had that connection made to be able to understand, can you not see why I'm experiencing difficulties? You know, the visible difference that you spoke about is something that, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, the massively privileged place that I find myself, I've probably not thought as much about how visible difference can often show up in film, television, TV as villainy or as, you know, a negative thing. And so, yeah, of course, I'm then going to suddenly have this subconscious thought process of, well, it, it, you know, it must mean X, Y, or Z. So I really value that, you know, kind of approach that you're taking. And I guess, as I said in my introduction, you're working in comms and your ability to convey that in a really brilliant way is, is I guess, lending itself really nicely to, to that, you know, campaigning that you're doing. We'll be back after this. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Welcome back to Give Me Strength. One thing I am really, you know, having just come off the back of that, you you spoke about, you know, our perception of baldness and, you know, connected to that is this idea that you you wore wigs for many years. As you said, you wore wigs all the way up until lockdown. I'm so interested in that shift. And this isn't to say that anyone who chooses to wear a wig is, is doing wrong in that. I've seen some amazing wigs, by the way, recently, like they are now so, so good. But you you did make the shift to to decide not to wear one. And that happened during lockdown. Talk to me about that moment and what kind of, I guess, really changed for you. I wish there was this big light bulb moment that I could reference. I think it was more a gradual process. But I think fundamentally, when I reflect on that time in lockdown, there was a bit of a revolution in lockdown in terms of people maybe refusing to wear so much makeup or, you know, wearing their joggers on bottom and kind of joking about how it was a relief almost not to have to present to the world. So take that mindset that we all experienced and then apply it to someone like me that for 20 years has had to roll out of bed and wash, moisturize, carefully draw eyebrows on, place a wig on, even often when I had open cuts on my head from my eczema because I wore a wig for 12 hours at a time. And I did all those things to present to the world because I thought that's what I had to do. I had never stopped to question if I needed to wear a wig or why I was wearing a wig because to get back to school all those years before, it was just, it's time to get a wig, Laura. You know, it there was no interrogation as to, as to why or could I wear it sometimes and then take it off. For me, as soon as that wig was on at the age of 14 and I left that hairdresser's, that was it. Public me was hairy Laura. Private me was, oh my God, get this thing off. Like, you know how people come in the door and, and relax. For me, it was the wig straight away every time. Scratch, scratch, scratch. God, and I hate the cliche of like wig wearing, but my God, sometimes it's true, especially when like me, you have 
very severe eczema and you are wearing a hat of hair for 12 hours every single day of your life. Understandably, it wasn't particularly comfortable. So the first step was definitely the working from home and realizing, hey, in between these Teams meetings, I don't have to wear my wig. Like, oh, what a relief. I'll just whip it on and off. Oh, my God. And then I started noticing that my scalp was really getting better and I didn't have these big open cuts anymore. And that was a physical relief. And that's when I started thinking, wow, I've always just thought I have eczema and these marks on my head. I know that sounds really stupid, but I'd always just thought I was going to have an eczema scalp. Once I realized the connection was, no, I am giving myself eczema of the scalp because I am choosing to wear this wig every day, I started thinking, so what's more important to me, my physical health or this colleague's social comfort at how they see me and how they perceive me? And that moment of starting to question, why? Why am I terrified to be seen without this wig? That was the start for me. And from that why, and just having so much time at home, like we all did, and so much time on social media, which to be clear, my Instagram before then was just pretty historic houses because that's all I did. I just went and looked at nice places. I was middle-aged before my time. All of a sudden, I searched the hashtag alopecia and it's like my whole freaking world has blown up because all of a sudden, there's just images, bald, beautiful people embracing it, doing makeup, finding new eyebrows to put on, eyebrow stickers, you know. And I'd not seen any of this in the mainstream because it's it's no there's no there's no platform for people to celebrate their visible differences. So honestly, it was like the curtains coming up, and I found this whole world online. And I started following people. I made friends. I slid into people's DMs where I would literally write messages like, "I cannot believe that you have the confidence to go to work without your wig. I'm so impressed by you. I don't think I'll ever get there, but thank you so much for what you're doing to raise awareness. It makes me feel so like encouraged." And then bit by bit, all of a sudden, I started doing things to challenge myself. I started, and it literally started with starting to wear a bandana outside to put the bins out. I nearly had a panic attack doing it, but I chronicled it on Instagram. And it sounds pathetic now looking back, but it wasn't. Those were real feelings I had. That phobia to be seen without my wig was intense to the point where if someone rang the doorbell, I would hide behind this sofa rather than answer the door. Because that that wasn't public facing me. I wasn't ready. I needed to present. So it was a gradual shifting away from thinking, why? Why do I have to have two versions of myself? And why can't I reconcile those? Yeah, it's great that I can wear wigs sometimes or do my makeup or get dolled up and present myself in a certain way. But what is, what's so bad about being seen as how I wake up in the morning? Why have I been taught my whole life to hide this version of me? Why have I been taught when I have open cuts all over my head that I have to hide that from the world by making it worse? It just doesn't make sense to me. And my God, it took me to the age of 30 to get to that point where I started questioning. But that's how deep-rooted these things are. And that's how deep-rooted this whole idea of, yeah, being palatable, being presentable. It goes really, really deep. That You basically took a word out that I was just about to use out of my mouth, like making yourself palatable for those around you. Two things came up for me there. I think the first thing that I, I really find interesting is this sense of the wig providing a, a safety blanket for you that you you know, with a wig, you felt as if you were just the same as everyone else. And I think that that's, that really ties into your message about visible difference that, you know, for a lot of people, albeit you were able to put a wig on, but a lot of people just don't look like everyone else. And we have mm. to understand that that is not something to be, you know, stared at or, you know, made to feel different to. I think that it's really important that, that like, we should create safety for everyone. Everyone should feel safe to be represented as who they are, rather than us creating this such a small binary approach to, like, what is acceptable and what is presentable, and then kind of judging anyone who goes outside of that, you know, very narrow um, description. So I think that that was the first thing. But yeah, I think the second thing that came up for me was this sense of, like, like palatability, like having to shrink yourself, I guess, to fit what other people wanted you to be. And I think that, you know, the fact that you found a community, the fact that you could see other people who look like you, I just 
I can't imagine how amazing that must have felt to suddenly have your world, which must have felt really small, suddenly be like burst open. And you have all of these people who are now, I guess, giving you the confidence to say, oh my God, I'm not alone. There are people who look like me and and there is support as well. Because I think that, you know, without putting words into your mouth, it sounds like you didn't necessarily have as much support as as uh, as you probably should have done and as you deserved. I didn't even talk to my friends about it. Looking back, it was like the worst kept secret when I went back to school. So yeah, finding community all these years later. Yeah, there's probably untouched, untreated traumas from those teenage years where I didn't get to talk it through. I didn't have therapy. I didn't talk about it. I didn't acknowledge the impact that this change in my external appearance had on me, on, on my personality, on on my worth and on who I thought I was. And now it's almost like, yeah, people are like, well, I thought you said you were more than your alopecia. You talk about it a damn lot. Um, Yeah, I do, because I'm making up for 20 years of feeling like I wanted to do anything but talk about my alopecia. I was terrified for anyone to notice I was wearing a wig or to see me without it. So now you can bet that I'm going to make this a big part of my identity because it's a part that I'm really proud of now because it shows my resilience. It shows what's wrong with society that I felt I had no other choice and that even the people around me the people that loved me didn't know what to do or how to support me through that to ask those questions as to if you want to wear a wig Laura that's great if it makes you feel empowered great if it stops you doing things like having sleepovers going to theme parks doing PE it's not so great why don't we talk about that why don't you consider those activities maybe you don't wear your wig And I know that might seem scary, but you do it once, you do it another time, and soon it becomes easier. I just needed someone to talk through all those questions that were clearly in my head. Somehow I just pushed them down and never dealt with them. And um, I said no to so many things in my life. So yeah, now I will just keep banging on about it. And, And it's funny because I think it's really interesting you talk about palatability, like we said, and and also that it's this idea that it's still somehow radical to choose to present outside that binary so the big thing that I struggle with especially in comments around things when I've been on videos or whatever is people and I've had this saying it's fine that she's bald but she just needs to lose weight she'd look fine bald she just needs to cover up that eczema on her scalp she would be fine if x but not x there is a hierarchy of diversity and it is not okay And yeah, I would maybe like to be fitter and healthier for my health post-pandemic. And hey, on the other hand, I managed to leave my house bald and I've walked London Fashion Week. I've given a talk at my university and I'm on your podcast right now. So I think I'm doing okay. But yeah, all you want to talk about in the comments is that, my God, she's put on weight in the last three years. No, 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 no. We're missing a trick here. If you are so obsessed when I'm a visible difference campaigner talking about impact, looking slightly different from the norm has had on me and yet all you can reflect on is how it would be more palatable for you to look at me if I was slim or if I had great skin see the one or the other and I just think that's so wrong I feel like I'm basically rebelling by seeing chubby because I that's what I mean by there's no representation for me out there because I'm like it's great to see models bald it's great to see them rocking the catwalk do I feel they represent me as an as an average person that just happens to not have hair no I don't I don't without putting words into your mouth I think what what I get from what you just said is rather than it being like a rebellious thing it's actually just kind of I guess finding a sense of I don't want to assume this because it's quite a big loaded thing but a sense of self-acceptance that there's kind of a, a something within you that's found a level of peace where you're like I don't feel I have to fit the narrative anymore and I think that I wish everyone could get to that point. The people that you're talking about who have made comments about you, horrible comments, are people who are deeply uncomfortable with anyone looking differently. And those people have years of probably of internal bias, of, um, you know, a level of uncomfortability within themselves. You know, when we think about anti-fat bias, when we think about anything that differs from, again, quote unquote, the norm, it just is so conditioned into us that we should look a certain way that 
of course, it stirs up a level of uncomfortability within, you know, people who suddenly go, oh, well, you know, maybe I could accept it if this, and they're trying to make it fit their narrative of what they would accept. And it's like, oh, hang on a second. I don't need to please you. Like my Mm -hmm. sole purpose on this earth is not to make you happy. It's brilliant that there are people who are willing to challenge that, but that's a big pressure, Laura. And I, I think that, you know, what I want to acknowledge, I guess, as someone who has the pleasure of being able to interview is to say, you are amazing, but that is a big burden to carry. So, you know, in, in doing that, I hope just you have people that support you and that help you to channel that message and that it's not solely falling on you to feel as though you have to be the person that represents, you know, yourself and those who are like you. As much as I value you doing it, I also hope there are others that are supporting you. No, I think we always need to work on ourselves and we always need to interrogate. And yeah, I feel like I'm 32 now and and going through this process of, of self-confidence effectively is what I've been sourcing and finding and working on. It does make me generally question you know how I function in this world and and other things about my personality and how I feel about myself and it is they're big questions there's no fixed answers and you know just because I'm able to walk out of my house bald now I'm not done and it's not linear and I always say this I'd say my happy place still mainly because it's flipping freezing outside right now but is also probably wearing a hat or a bandana because it's obvious I'm bald it's not in your face bald and it doesn't mean I'm definitely going to get a question because you're right there is a there is a burden once you start to choose to just show up in this world as you want to as your authentic self I can't really just pop down to my local shop anymore and buy milk without potentially having to have an interaction with someone where they either make an assumption about my health or ask me questions about my visible difference both of those to an extent are valid and I am happy to talk and answer those questions because I have made this decision at this stage in my life that I want to have those conversations. I don't want every moment to be an education moment for someone that might have some ignorance or has has never dared to broaden their newsfeed or want to learn about other people's experiences. If you've never seen a happy, healthy, bald woman, where have you been living? Like, you know, because... Well, I can tell you where, probably, yeah, where I was living in the smallest town in England. And I definitely am the only bald in the village. I would just put it that way. (laughs) I know people now because, yeah, I've embraced my bald head and it helps and it's lovely. And my friend actually made up a theme tune about me when she came to visit because she was like, oh, my God, everyone knows you, Laura. I was like, I'd like to think it's not about my bald head, but maybe it is. Um, Yeah, it can be a pressure. But also, I still think I'm in a really privileged position and I'm not going to sit here and pretend. I don't represent the visible difference community. I'm an expert in my own lived experience. I'm not here to represent alopecia as a whole or eczema as a whole or visible difference because you've met me. It's one person with alopecia. My experience could be totally and it will be totally different from lots of other people. And I think that's really important to remember. And at the end of the day, that's why I love podcasts like this, because it is, it's just about having a chat with another person, learning a bit about their life. I really appreciate that. And one of the things that I I would love to hear about and kind of a, a, a shift, I guess, on you having to be the voice for, but kind of at the same time, you kind of are, is in all your campaigning. And I am really interested to hear about how you went on to work for the charities that you do and how your role within both of those charities is, what you do, um, what you kind of do as part of your campaigning. So I happen to work in the charity sector. So I'm familiar with the sector and I've worked in PR and comms for many years where I've understood the power of individuals sharing their story to promote or reflect on often the benefit that a charity can have. For years, I didn't have support. And so I can't even claim that I went to Alopecia UK to be a case study and reflect, oh, I had this amazing support because I went to this group because that would be a lie. They know this. Like the CEO is basically my mentor. She's an absolute babe. So she knows that that wasn't my touch point with them. My touch point was I found my own community and then there were some socials or there was an opportunity to volunteer. So I kind of went about it the wrong way around when I saw that these two small charities, Alopecia UK and Changing Faces UK, were wanting to reach specifically as well a lot of the time I find my passion and focus is young people going through these things because I was obviously 13 when I started losing my hair so that's obviously 
why I think I'm so motivated to do a lot of volunteering with, for instance, the Alopecia UK Youth Voice Board. I just went to the CEO. I just went to the marketing person. I was like, hey, I see that you do this. Do you ever want someone to come along and talk? Or So in terms of how did I get to work with these charities, to put it bluntly, don't ask, don't get. I knew I had skills because, God forbid, I wasn't that 13-year-old terrified girl anymore. I was late 20s working in the charity sector. So I thought, well, if there are people feeling how I did back then, by God, in comparison, yeah, it's only been a year since I've been posting on social media. If I just from finding my tribe and my community online, I've been able to develop personally so much in the space of a year, I'm ready to start giving back. I'm ready to find those young people. And it's just so, I don't even have the words to how it feels to have met young people going through alopecia who are themselves volunteering their time to come together as a group and talk about how to make the charity better and how to reach young people and the confidence that some of these young people have and the vulnerability to talk about the difficult times they're having maybe at school and stuff is just been the most amazing rewarding thing and I know that sounds really cheesy and cliche but I just when you have gone through that 10 years before, oh, what am I talking about? 20 years before, I'm 32. Um, that's so depressing. Um, but, you know, school has changed. A lot of things have, has changed. Social media is totally different. And there is a big part of me that thinks, my God, maybe I would have got here much sooner if social media existed in the way it does now, the good side of social media. Then when I'm listening to some of these stories that, you know, these 13 to 17 year olds are telling me, a lot of stuff hasn't changed as well. And that's why to be an adult now, God forbid that I'm an adult in this space, and um, be a voice of reason sometimes, sometimes even just on a, on a chat between us as a youth voice board, get to say things like, I'm really sorry that you went through that and you had that experience with that boy at school. You just need to know that you're flipping brilliant and we're all here for you. And just be their cheerleader sometimes. It is that support and the voice that I didn't have. So that is why I want to fill that space now. And and through it, specifically the campaigning, which is much more, so changing faces, I'd say, are much more set up and geared towards campaigning. They offer support services. They offer skin camouflage services. They have experts in mental health. But a huge part of what they do as a charity is trying to change societal perceptions. It's that kind of wanting to fix things externally as opposed to internally. That's what made me apply to be a campaigner with them. And after this two-year program, which has led me to standing in front of a room of 20 BBC commissioners, telling them why something that happened in a quiz show was particularly difficult for the uh, visible difference community, as an example, or, I don't know, doing panel talks, all these things that I'd never done before, but I just said yes, and I did it. And as of today, I am now an ambassador for that charity because I've worked my butt off to just yeah be that voice how very very deserved that is that's brilliant I'm so happy that we got to speak to you on a special day yeah I mean I know <laughs> this is going out on Wednesday so maybe we can reframe that but well as of this week as of now- this week <laughs> <laughs> oh well done that is so that is so brilliant and so deserved we'll put the links to those charities in the show notes if anyone Thank wants you. to go and have a look um one of the things that I just want to finish on because I do think it'd be really interesting especially if people are listening to this who maybe are going through alopecia themselves or have gone through is you know you reference having no role models and I uh, you know when you experience your diagnosis but I I hope that that has changed I hope there you know you mentioned a mentor you mentioned a few other people I hope that shifted and I hope you do have people now that you look up to and you say these are my people that I really um you know resonate with and and relate to and also just get a lot of inspiration from who are the people now that do that for you it's tricky you know when we talk about role models because I think the biggest thing I've learned is it's not always about looking upwards to people that are further along in the journey sometimes it's just about looking sideways or even downwards back to some of these young people that like I said I have the privilege of volunteering with a lot of young people and learning from them and thinking Flipping heck, you're wise beyond your years and you've got there quicker than I did. And that's to be celebrated. Um, there are, of course, some people that are way, way lofty and above me. So someone like Katie Piper, I just think, is an incredibly powerful voice. I just freaking love her. And I got to meet her because through Instagram, I, I won a ticket to go to um, a book launch for Ellie Middleton, who... Um, I had met through other channels. Katie is just the most down-to-earth person in the world. And she is using her platform to give a platform to other people. And I think 
that is the thing that I value most in people because there is space at the table for everyone. You know, there is, it's not a competition. And yet I find even bizarrely, say even with creators or people that are using their voice to make change, sometimes it feels like it's, oh, I need to get there first or I need to do this first. Yeah, I like talking about my experience. And yeah, I think there is value in it, but I'm not the only one with an important story to share. And I'm not the only one or if, any, if anything, I know there are stronger stories than mine. I'll probably hook you up with them afterwards, to be honest, Alex. Like, this is the thing. It's like there are billions of people on this planet with something to say. And yeah, I think that's why I, if I had to pinpoint one person, in addition to obviously Gail Porter, who I just think is the queen of the alopecia community, um, it would probably be Katie Piper and then the entire Alopecia UK Youth Voice Board because they are amazing we had katie piper as a guest on the podcast and she is also someone that yeah i've i've met a couple of times and i have to say that you know when you describe an authentic person you're like you know Mm. someone's genuinely authentic when you meet them you're like i get you i get everything about you and i would say for me she is just one of those people that as soon as i met her i was like you are so genuine and so authentic and i just see this sense of complete you know just belief in herself and I, I I absolutely love her and I I have total shared admiration for her uh, with yeah, you let's just call this the Katie Piper fan page 100% yeah, yeah this is um that's what this episode called Katie Piper fan page now I'm joking <laughs> um Laura I I cannot thank you enough for coming on today for sharing your journey for your sharing your story vulnerability and passion and really articulate answers I have to give you that like so, you know I, I just think that you you explain everything really carefully and and brilliantly and I and I really value that because as someone who's coming to this as you know probably not knowing enough about alopecia as I probably should do I I feel like I've learned a lot but I also think that you shared it with a really gentle approach and I and I really appreciate that so thank you I have s- never been called gentle freaking it <laughs> love that yes take that one <laughs> I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I will put the link to both of those charities in the show notes. Um, But if anyone else wants to check out Laura, we'll also put her social media handle in the um, show notes as well. Thank you so, so, so much. I feel very, I feel like I'm going to skip off this call now because it's just, it's been really (laughs) lovely chatting to you. So thank you, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for just being so interested and asking the questions. It's just lovely, isn't it? When someone just wants to hear what your experience was and is. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i would love it if you could take some time to rate review and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it we have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out see you next time insanity group